0: You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. Okay, well, we'll get going this morning. Um, It's 1045, so it's going to be a late one, guys. hope nobody's too hungry yet. Okay, you guys are going to have to liven up a little bit. So, uh, <laughs> uh, before we get going, I do want to give you guys an update on kind of where we stand um, with the building. It's the, the building that we had an opportunity to tour uh, last week, I guess. Uh, not a whole lot of development on that front this week. Of course, if we, if we move forward with that, we'll be having a church vote for that. But I appreciate the ones of you that were able to come out. Um and so uh, you know to be honest the gap is still pretty large we we still need about $25,000 um for this down payment so big gap right um big gap and that may seem like a lot of money and that is a lot of money uh, but but we we do believe God can and and will provide that um and so we we just ask you guys to be praying with us every day please be praying about um about If it's not this building, it's going to be another building, and we're going to need money for a down payment on that one. Um, so be praying with us daily as we try to raise those funds. During this month of November, we're going to really be pushing to, to raise, uh, raise money for that down payment. And, uh, you know, for our church family here, we, we ask that you would take ownership of this. Take ownership of this. Ask the Lord what, what He would have you give personally. Um, you know, I, I I was thinking about this this week, and I was reminded of when God told Moses to tell the people in Exodus to raise money for the tabernacle. And man, they just brought they just kept bringing stuff, right? They kept bringing and bringing and bringing. And then a few chapters later, God has to tell Moses to tell the people to stop. That's too much. <laughs> like you've you've given you've overwhelmed us. You've given you've given uh, so much. So um, they took ownership for God's work. And that ownership even included their material possessions. So I would ask you to be praying about you know what you can give, who you can get involved in this. If you have any good you know good ideas about about raising money in the next month, uh, then let us know. And um, you know we believe we believe that God can do this. Uh, there's nothing too big for our God. Amen. Nothing too big for our God. And so. Um, we'd invite you just to be just to be praying about that. All right. Well, um, you know, I was thinking about I was thinking about just our church this week, and you know what what we do here really matters, guys. It, I mean, it really matters. Uh, it, it's so important that Christians are equipped with the Word of God. Not talking about my words, talking about His words. Um, and it's so important that we're encouraged, to we're pushing each other to get out there and, and share this gospel truth with the world so that the world might be saved. Um, you know, we, Stephen and I and, and you know, others, we, we believe we're building something here um, that God's going to use in a huge way. And He already has in so many ways. I was just thinking back on some of the stories and I look around and I won't embarrass anybody uh, this morning, but some of your stories and just how you've grown and, and come to Christ and, and taken on new roles and just, it's been overwhelming for me um, as your pastor to, to see those things and um, just so excited for, for, for what God has for us in the future. One um, The thing that I love about, about this church is that you guys have taken the gospel, you've taken personal responsibility for it. Right, it's not about a pastor. It's not about any leaders in this church. It's about the church being the church, under the headship of Christ. And it's been so beautiful to watch you guys take personal responsibility for the gospel, for getting the gospel to your friends, to your coworkers, to your families, uh, to strangers, and to hear stories every single week of how you guys are doing that. Uh, what we are doing here really, really matters. And, of course, we want to see that continue in a new building. Um, and we, we know God will provide that, uh, whether it's now or whether it's later. He will provide that, um, and, and we trust that. But I want you to know that God is, uh, you know this, but God is in this. God is in this and for us. And uh, it's, been, it's been so great to see you guys and myself grow over the past few years. And I'm just super proud uh, to be a part of this church family. And I know you guys are too. Um, So with that being said, let's let's open our Bibles. We'll turn to John chapter five. And this morning we're going to try to wrap up this chapter. And, you know, as I said kind of the past two sessions, this is one of the clearest passages in Scripture where Jesus claims to be God. He claims to be God very clearly. In this passage, if you, if you don't believe that Jesus ever claimed to be God, well, then you've obviously never read John chapter 5. You've never read and understood what, what Jesus is saying here. And remember this wonderful discourse of, of Jesus uh, making these claims to be equal with God. It all stems with what happens in verses 1 through 16 in this chapter. Jesus heals this lame man of 38 years. Um, he heals him. He can walk. And he does it, though, on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders, they're angry. So angry, in fact, that they decide that from this point forward, they're going to focus all of their attention and all of their energy and effort on killing Jesus. And So this, is, this chapter is a real turning point for the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, of course, has not broken any of God's law by healing this man on the Sabbath, but he had at least in their minds, he had, break, he had broken the traditions of the Jewish leaders. Remember, they had all these ridiculous l- rules about the Sabbath that went uh, above and beyond um, God's law. And so, in their opinion, he had broken those. And so rather than responding uh, by defending his actions and saying, hey, you guys have all these extra rules that are not part of God's law, he doesn't do that. Instead, he says something a whole lot more shocking he gives them six proofs that He is equal with God. And that's what we looked at uh, last week. He is God Himself. And so we looked at these proofs last time. Jesus is equal in nature with the Father, equal in works, equal in knowledge, equal in deserving of honor, equal in power over life and death, and equal in judgment to the Father. All of those things uh, we see in, in verses essentially 18 through through 30 and we don't see the jews response to any of that right we, we don't see the jews say anything else in this chapter uh, but you can imagine that they are pretty much fuming with anger at this point they already wanted to kill him and then he makes all of these these claims which which you would you would have to uh, say if someone's making this this claim they're crazy like the things that Jesus was saying, they would have, they would have concluded, You're, this is an insane man. Or he is who he says he is. Right? He's got to be uh, one of those things. And, and so then, starting in verse 31, Jesus begins to give an apologetic of what he has just said. He, he has just said that he's equal to God in every way because he is God himself. And now he's going to kind of double down on that by saying, let me prove it to you. Let me prove it to you. So that's, that's where we're at, uh, starting in verse 31. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to read these verses and then uh, jump in here. Okay, so Jesus is talking here, and he says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive the testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form, but you do not have His word abiding in you, because whom He sent, Him you do not believe. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe? How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time of worship that you've already given us, God. Um, We thank you for this time together. Um, And God, we just ask that as we move forward in your word this morning, you would just be magnified and glorified and you would speak to our hearts, Father. And you would please just move me out of the way. Remove any distractions from this place. And help us to just to give glory and honor to you this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. So what we see in this section is Jesus telling the Jews why all that he just said is absolutely true. And he does this by using a series of witnesses to himself. So let's look at verse 31 first. Jesus says here that, that if he bears witness of himself, his witness is not true. That's a strange thing for Jesus to say, it seems. Jesus is not saying that my witness is not true, I'm lying. Uh, what he is saying is that if I'm the only one saying these things about myself, then there's no way that you're going to believe what I say. Okay? Um, and he's right. These guys hate Jesus already, and they think He's a liar. Um, On top of that, according to Jewish legal customs, the testimony in court of the defendant was was not even valid. Your own testimony was not even valid. It wasn't accepted as evidence. Their law said that you needed two or three witnesses to back up uh, your testimony. So Jesus says, essentially, I'm not asking you to believe my words at this point, just because I'm saying them, I'm asking you to examine the evidence that backs up my words. And Jesus begins to bring forth his witnesses to the stand, uh, starting in verse 32. And, and verse 32 is really the central place, the central piece under which all this, uh, this other evidence sits. Jesus says, there's, there's another who bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. And Jesus here is referring to God the Father. God the Father. He says, I'm going to bring you a witness whom we know His witness is true. You may not believe me, but you're going to believe the Father. right? I'm going to bring my Father as the witness. And all the other evidence is going to be part of the Father's witness to the Son. So that's kind of our heading for today, the Father's witness to the Son. If the Jewish leaders would accept that the Father has validated what Jesus has said, they might just believe and be saved, which clearly from Scripture is God's desire for all people that they would be saved. Now, we know, we know that the Father has va- verbally validated His Son at specifically two other times in Scripture. His baptism... And his transfiguration. Remember, both of those events, um, God verbally says from heaven, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Crystal clear validation. But remember, only a small group of people were were at those moments, right? A handful of disciples. Um, Only a few people uh, witnessed those things. And these Jewish leaders were not part of those groups. So Jesus brings other witnesses to illustrate the Father's witness to the Son. And the first piece of evidence that the Father has brought to validate His Son is the testimony of the forerunner to Jesus. The forerunner to Jesus. And the forerunner to Jesus... Who's the forerunner to Jesus? You guys know? John the Baptist, right. John the Baptist. So um, we see this in verses 33-35. through Jesus says in verse 33 that you... The religious leaders he's talking to, you have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. And that's exactly what we've already seen in this gospel. Remember, like John chapter 3, we looked at that. They sent to John, they had sent to John, and John bore witness to who Jesus was. John's testimony to Jesus. Remember that prior to John, it had been about 400 years since the Jewish people had heard God speak to them through a prophet. 400 years of silence from heaven. And then all of a sudden, this man comes on the scene, born of parents who were too old to be reproducing. Right? It was a miraculous birth. Um, and he begins to speak with authority, imploring the Jewish people, he says, to repent of your sins and be baptized in order to prepare yourselves for the Messiah who's coming and who's already here, that they have been waiting for so long. Remember, he calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And remember, he says, I'm not even able, I'm not, I'm not worthy to even loosen the, the straps on his sandals. This one that's coming, he's so much greater than me, says John. And John uh, was pretty much universally accepted by the people as a prophet from God. There really wasn't a uh, dispute. I mean, the people as a whole. They, they, John. they didn't worship John, they followed John as a prophet sent from God. Even the Jewish leaders were intrigued by, by John. Jesus says here, you sent for John. They were even intrigued by who John was and sent to learn more about him. And so in verse 34, Jesus says, Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. And we just got to pause here for a moment and notice uh, just a couple of things. First of all, the amazing grace of Jesus. Don't let that that slip by in this passage. The amazing grace of Jesus. This this chapter just told us that these men wanted to kill Jesus. And that was was at this point their sole purpose. They wanted to kill Jesus. And Jesus says here, "I, I, I want you to be saved. You want to kill me, I want you to be saved. That's my desire. What kind of amazing love is that? That to his enemies, Jesus would say, Come, come, you you can be saved. Come and be saved. Nobody's like this Jesus, are they? Nobody's like that. We as, as Christians who have the Holy Spirit in us, We really struggle to be like that, don't we? Let alone the rest of the world. Nobody is like this Jesus and His grace and His love. Secondly, Jesus says essentially, I don't need human testimony. I don't need John's testimony. I give you John's testimony so that you can be saved. So that you will believe but John's testimony doesn't change who I am. Okay, so what we believe and what we say about God doesn't change the truth about God. That's a message our society needs to hear, right? Our postmodern, uh, becoming post Christian society needs to hear that message. What you think about God doesn't change who God is. You can think whatever you want. You're free to think whatever you want about God, but it doesn't change the truth about God. And it will never change the truth about God. It kind of spits in the face of this uh, postmodernism, modernism where, where your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and somehow we're all going to end up in paradise together looking down on the rest of the world smiling. I don't think so. That's not what Jesus teaches. See, there is a truth about who God is and how He has revealed Himself. And His name is Jesus. Period. And our opinions of Him do not change the fact that we will all stand before Him. He's not justified by man's testimony. Yet in His grace... He gives us the testimony of a human life transformed to persuade us to believe. So He puts people in our lives that have this testimony of how they've been transformed by Christ. And He does that so that we might believe. That's what He does with John. He said, I gave you John's testimony so that you would believe. How can you deny the change that Jesus has made in the life of an absolutely selfish hateful sinner who now lives to serve and to spread the gospel of Christ. How do you explain that? How do you explain that apart from the transforming power of Christ? But what a grace it is to unbelievers that He puts people in their lives that have been transformed by Him as a testimony so that they might believe. What a grace that is to the world. And that's what, the, that's what John's testimony was supposed to be for the religious leaders. But they didn't listen. Jesus goes on to say that, that John was the burning and shining lamp who they enjoyed for a time. I love that description of John, a lamp. He was, he was simply a, a bearer and a, a displayer of the true light. Jesus is the light, but John is just a, a lamp lamp holding out that light. And shouldn't that be the goal of every Christian? Every one of us, that we would be a lamp for the light of Jesus. If if you could live your life and have people say that you were a lamp for Christ, would that be enough for you? Would that be enough for you? This is our purpose, guys, to bear His light. That is your purpose in life, to testify of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only purpose worth living for. And how I pray that we would be a church that that people would say that about. No matter what building we're meeting in, that people would say, man, they're a lamp for the gospel. They're a lamp for the true light of Jesus. They really care about Jesus. They really want His message to be known. And so the first component of the Father's witness to Jesus is the forerunner, John the Baptist. The second component is the miracles of Jesus. This is verse 36. Um, Let's look at that verse again. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Jesus says that even, an even greater, more compelling uh, witness than John's witness are the works that he does, the miracles that Jesus performs. He's saying the Father proves Jesus' testimony because Jesus is able to do things that only the Father can do. And the religious leaders know this. They, wouldn't have, they would not have denied that statement. They've witnessed it. They've seen it. They just saw Jesus heal this man who had been lame for 38 years. They would not deny this. Remember in John 3, in fact, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and what does he say? He says, "We know you're sent from God. Because no one could do the works that you do without God." That's what Nicodemus, one of these religious elite, that's what he said about Jesus. They did not deny the miracles. So how could a man come and make all these claims that Jesus just made that He is God and then back those statements up by healing the sick, by causing the blind to see, by making the paralyzed walk, by raising the dead? How could He do all that and people still not believe? How do you justify that unbelief? And we're going to get to that. Well, the Pharisees said that, that, well, he's from Satan. That's how he does this. Uh, He's from Satan. That's in in Matthew 12, if you want to take a look at that this week. Uh, Matthew 12, Jesus casts out this demon, and they say, well, he does this by the power of Beelzebub. They had all the evidence in the world, and that is their conclusion. He's satanic. Jesus, of course, puts that to rest in in that passage saying, A house divided against itself cannot stand. Satan is not going to cast out Satan. Why would Satan be casting out a demon? Neither would a messenger of Satan lay down his own life willingly without a word for the sake of humankind. So Jesus' point here in John is that God the Father is, backs up his testimony by John the Baptist and by allowing him to perform miraculous works. The Father authenticates the Son by miracles. And then the last component of the Father's witness to the Son is the prophecy concerning Jesus. And this is found in the remaining verses. Jesus here gives a strong indictment of the religious leaders. And we're going to dive into this a little bit further in just a bit. But, but look at verse 39. Jesus says, you search the Scriptures. You've you got to spend all of your time searching the Scriptures because you think you're going to be justified by them. You think that's where you're going to find life. But you don't realize that it is the Scriptures that testify of me, Jesus says. The Father has given the Old Testament to testify to Jesus. Jesus says, not only has, has, has God given you John the Baptist and the miracles which I do, He's also been prophesying very clearly about me from the very beginning. And it starts in Genesis. It starts in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve sin. God says, I will send a seed from the family of Eve who will crush the head of Satan. That seed was Jesus who would defeat Satan on the cross. We think about Noah. His family had to be inside the ark in order to be saved from destruction, just as we must be in Jesus to be saved from eternal destruction. Then God calls Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. These guys would have been big fans of Abraham. And He tells him to sacrifice His only son, Isaac. Does that sound familiar? But at the last moment, God provides a sacrifice, a substitute. It points to Jesus, who is God's only Son, who would be our substitute on the cross. Then with Joseph, he is scorned by his brothers, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, and God raises him up to second in command in Egypt, And his brothers have to travel, guess where, to Egypt in order to get food because they're starving and they have to get it from the brother whom they scorned. And the one whom they had scorned provides forgiveness and provides salvation from death. It points to Jesus, guys. Then at Passover it was the blood of the Lamb placed on the doorposts that would save the Israelites. What did John call Jesus? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It points to Jesus. In the wilderness, every single detail of the tabernacle that they made pointed to Jesus. You can read that in Hebrews. You can go through those details and see miraculously how it all pointed to Jesus. The high priest Every year, He would first have to make Himself clean by the blood sprinkling blood of the animal on Himself so that He could intercede on behalf of the people. He had to be a perfect one, making sacrifice for the people. It points to Jesus, who would be ultimately the perfect sacrifice, fulfilling every part of the law of God. We skip ahead to Babylon and the exile, the king uh, looks into the furnace and he sees Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego which he put in there and he sees a fourth one. And he says this fourth one looks like the Son of God. That's Jesus. Then we find in Micah that the Messiah would be he would come from Bethlehem, be born in Bethlehem. We read in several places that He'd be a descendant of Jesse and of David. And then we see He'd, he'd be born of a virgin. He'd live in Galilee. All of these prophecies hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. We look at Psalm 18 and Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, which, which David went through last week. Um, and many other passages where even the rejection of the Jewish people is predicted. It's right there for these guys to read. And we see very specific pictures of the way Christ would be crucified by His own people. He's prophesied as the stone that the builders would reject who has become the chief cornerstone. He's prophesied as the suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions. It's prophesied that they would gamble for His clothes while He's hanging on the cross naked. And that He'd be pierced, but that they wouldn't break a bone in His body. What happened to Jesus? Jesus. And it's even prophesied the amount of silver that Jesus would be betrayed for. And there's so much more from Genesis to Malachi. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's possibly the most shocking, most impressive piece of God's witness to Jesus. That's more impressive than raising the dead in some ways. Like, it's unbelievable. Hundreds and hundreds of years before, he foreshadows, illustrates, specifically prophesies, and gets people to write down all of these things pointing to Jesus. Using dozens of different human vessels. This is not one guy writing the Old Testament. I mean, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. There's no case to be made for the other side. And yet, the religious leaders rejected Jesus. And Jesus gives us the root of the problem in verse 40. He says, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. They were not willing. It was not not a lack of evidence. You see, it didn't have anything to do with evidence. It wasn't that they were not convinced intellectually. They were convinced intellectually, in fact. The Bible says that. It was simply that they were unwilling to believe. Unwilling to surrender. And in the remaining verses and in our remaining time, I I think we see three reasons for their unwillingness to believe. Three reasons that, that might just hit too close to home for some of us this morning. And three reasons that we need to examine ourselves for. First of all, In verses 37 to 40, we see that the Jews valued self-righteousness over imputed righteousness. So Jesus gives a really strong rebuke of these Pharisees in verse 37. He says that these men, who literally make a living of studying God's Word, that's what these religious leaders did. These men have never heard the voice of God and have never seen who He is. That's what Jesus says about them. What a powerful rebuke. Can you imagine the anger? I can just see their faces turning red and they're ready to strike. You know, you've never even heard from God. You don't have a clue who He is, Jesus says. He says, you don't have God's Word in you because you've rejected the one that God sent Himself, of course. Then in verse 39, He tells them that they think they have life in the Scriptures. They search the Scriptures because in, in them is where you think you have life. And that's exactly right. That's exactly what they thought. They had become so focused on following the letter of the law and even creating more rules so they could follow the letter of the law even better, in their opinion. that they had begun to think that it was in keeping the law that they were justified. They had fallen into the trap of thinking they're earning their salvation. They had become self-righteous. And use Scripture only to justify themselves. Oh, they use Scripture when it was convenient to justify their own actions and to look down on others. They use Scripture for those purposes. See, the Scriptures were only a tool to further validate their own actions, thinking that they were earning God's favor. Meanwhile, they refused to come to Jesus to receive free righteousness. Imputed righteousness. This righteousness is just given to you. All you have to do is believe and you get Jesus' perfect life. Imputed to you. And you have favor with God. That's it. Yet they refused that free righteousness apart from works. They preferred self-righteousness. But you know, I find a lot of times as Christians, we're not much different in the way we use the Scriptures. We come to God's Word sometimes um, really only to validate what we're already thinking. We're we're coming to God's Word sometimes to to try to find ways to rationalize what we already want to do. That's the first step to taking God's Word out of context. Come with an agenda. And how often we do, even as Christians, we come to the Word with an agenda. Or we use it only to make us feel better about where we are. We just read those encouraging verses, right? Oh, I just need to feel better about where I am. But I'm not going to submit my life to it. That's the way many Christians use the Bible. We use Scripture to justify ourselves, justify our actions. And then we, like the Pharisees, never hear from God. And we wonder why. It's because of the agenda that we come with. When we approach the Scripture, it should be with a posture of absolute humility. Of thankfulness that we have our righteousness freely given to us by Christ. We should come to the Word with a desperation to hear from God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. We should come to the Word with a desperation to hear from God, even if it's not what you want to hear. Because sometimes it's not. With a desperation and let God have His work in our lives of making us more like Him. If you're not coming to the Word that way this morning, you're not becoming more like Him. Rather, you're becoming hardened to Him and who He is. We approach the Scriptures with humility with desperation. We, we, I just want to hear from you, God. Will you Will you speak to me? And if it hurts, it hurts. But I need you to change me. The Pharisees were coming to Scripture every day. But they weren't coming to hear from God. And they missed the most important moment in all of history, the coming of the Messiah that the Old Testament had predicted. Are you coming to the Word, asking God to challenge you and to change you, to transform you? Or are we only coming to the Word for selfish reasons or to justify ourselves and our behavior? The second reason for their unwillingness to believe is that they preferred the Jesus of their own minds more than the Jesus of of the Scriptures. Let's look at verses 41-43. through 43. Jesus says that He doesn't receive honor from men. And verse 43 gives the reason why they don't honor Him. He says that He's come in the Father's name, but if another comes in my, if another comes in His own name, they will receive Him. You see, the Jews wanted a Messiah who would come and say, follow Me, we're going to take down the Romans. We're coming back to power, baby. That's what they wanted. They wanted the the glory days of King David again. Israel's on top. And they wanted it to come from someone who's just like them. A man. Just like them, with their same weaknesses, their same problems. But Jesus wasn't like that. He came in his father's name, claiming to be God himself. He came for a spiritual revolution in his first coming, not to bring the Jews back to power. That's not what his first coming was about. It was about bringing salvation to the Jews and to the Gentiles, the whole world. And if he's God, well, that means he has real authority over my life. Now they didn't like that at all. That means He's Lord of our lives or He better be. See they were good with the Messiah who, who would rule the world but not one who demanded to rule their own hearts. They weren't good with that. They wanted their own version of Messiah, And it's that mindset that will eventually uh, lead them to accept the Antichrist. That mindset. Someone that's going to come in his own name. I think that's, that's, a, that's referring to the Antichrist coming. But you know, how often do we do the same thing? We're unwilling to surrender everything to Jesus because we want to be our own boss. We want to do what we want to do. It's not, again, it's not a lack of evidence. It's not that Jesus hasn't proven himself who he is. It's that we don't like the Jesus who challenges who we are and who draws us to holiness. We don't like that Jesus. We don't like the Jesus who demands complete surrender of ourselves, who says, You come and lay down your life. And you can have true life. We don't like that, Jesus. We don't like to lay down our own agendas. There's a third and final reason that they're unwilling to believe. And and that's because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. This is verse 44. Jesus says that they cannot believe. They cannot believe because they receive honor from themselves and do not seek the honor that comes from God. Later in John 12, Jesus says that, that they love the praise of men more than God. And, and I, I dare say that, that this one probably hits home to all of us in some way this morning. We love the praise of men More than we love God, a lot of times. We're so concerned about our image many times that we miss the whole point of what church is supposed to be a place where we can be vulnerable with each other, share with each other our struggles, fight for each other, fight alongside each other, encourage one another, bear burdens with each other, be vulnerable. You can be vulnerable here. But we're afraid to share life with other believers because we're afraid that that they might think less of us if they really knew me. If they knew my secrets, they might think less of me. That would ruin my image. It would hurt my image. These religious leaders, they, they had an appearance of following God on the outside. But on the inside was a completely different story. They were dead. But they put on this front... So that no one would ever know because they lived for the praise of men and not for God. They wouldn't be around certain people because they lived for the praise of men and not for God. And every move they made had to be perfectly calculated to protect this image of this perfectly righteous person because they lived for the praise of men and not for God. And it was this love of the praise of men that ultimately caused them to reject the Savior of their souls. It was this perfect image. Not the vulnerability, not the weakness. It was this perfect image that they tried to have. It was the perfect image that did them in. tried so hard to protect that image. And in the end, that was the thing that prevented them from coming to the Savior. Christ goes on to say here in these next few verses that he wouldn't be the one accusing them on Judgment Day. He says it'll be Moses. I'm sure they were like there was probably an audible gasp when he said that. Not Moses. Moses is for us. We keep His law. We love Moses. Moses is our God. We're taught with Moses. Jesus says he's, He's going to be the one that actually judges you. It would be the law that God delivered through Moses as His vessel. It would be the law that they had Superficially tried so hard to obey that would accuse them. He says that if, if you had truly believed Moses, there's no way you would have missed Jesus. Because Moses wrote about Jesus, as we've already seen. It would be what they thought as their strength, keeping the law, that would become the ultimate Weakness to keep them from knowing God because God's law requires perfection. It's as simple as that. You have to be perfect to go to heaven. You have to be perfect. And you're not. And they were not. There is none righteous. So we need a righteousness that has been earned for us, that is outside of us, that can be placed on us. Amen? And that's only in the perfect work of Jesus, that we can have that righteousness. And some of you this morning are in danger of missing ultimate joy and peace in the presence of God for eternity because you refuse to be vulnerable before God because you love the praise of men. i got to keep my image. I don't do things like that. It's not that Jesus hasn't shown you enough evidence. Give me a break. <laughs> that's, ridic- that's a ridiculous statement. People don't have an evidence problem. They have an unwillingness problem. They have a stubbornness problem. And that stubbornness, that hard-heartedness will be your ruin. But even in that hard-heartedness, Jesus, just like He did with these men, He's saying, come. I'm telling you these things so that you can be saved. Come and lay it all down and follow me. And as we close in just a minute, I want to beg you, if you don't know Jesus, what are you doing? What are you waiting for? It's stubbornness. It's just a refusal to believe. The evidence is there. Come today. don't wait another moment. You know, for those that are Christians in this room, we often subtly love the praise of men more than God as well. Let's, let's just be honest. We sometimes we we'll, we'll refuse to be vulnerable with each other. I can't show my weakness. Oh, how was your week? Great. Awesome. Yeah. How was yours? The best. Yeah. It was real good. Yeah. That's it. It's as far as we get, huh? Can't show my weakness. What about in evangelism? We refuse to speak up. What is, what is the root of that? The love of men, the praise of men, is greater than the love of God. It's as simple as that. When we do not spread this truth, although it's a sick kind of love of men, but it's a love of the praise of men. If we loved men, we would give them the gospel. But we don't love men, we love the praise of men. And men will praise you if you just don't offend them. If you just don't offend them, if you just put your stamp of approval on everything that they do and say, you're doing okay. They'll love you. You'll be great. But is that, it is that love of the praise of men that sends millions and millions and billions to hell. Yeah, we have the truth, but um, we'd rather you just keep telling us that we're doing good than tell you the truth. I mean, isn't that us, though, a lot of times? We, we, we love The praise of men. And you may not sit here and say, yes, I love the praise of men more than I love God. No, I I doubt anyone would say that in this room. But when we don't take this gospel of peace to the world, that's what our actions say. And actions speak much louder than words, people. Your words will not save you on judgment day. No one's words. No little prayer that you said when you were seven is going to save you on judgment day. It's going to be the motives behind those words. The actions behind the words prove the words. We're so worried about what people might think about us more than what God thinks about us. We even avoid certain people because they're different, or we might look bad if we're with them, and so we refuse to get the gospel to those people. The Pharise- That's Pharisee stuff right there. That's what they did. If we're honest, that's what we do sometimes. Ah, that guy's really annoying. I don't know if I can have a conversation with him. So I'm just not. I'm not going to care about his soul at all. Whatever, I mean, whatever it is. It could be skin color, it could be a socioeconomic class—it could be gender; it could be any reason, really, that you don't want to talk to that person about Christ because we might look bad for some reason. There's so many ways that this love of men shows up every day, and so I'll ask you this morning, as we as we do close, I would just ask you to examine your heart. I'm going to ask you about your heads um, and close your eyes. Examine your heart this morning. Ask God to show you if there's any any ways that you're preferring the honor of men over the honor of God. And I want to end with the fact that verse 44 indicates that one day God is going to somehow honor us, His followers. Now, can you imagine that? The, the God... Of the universe. He's going to honor us, reward us if we're in Jesus. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine God rewarding you? Of course, there will be no reward for those who will not humble themselves daily before Him. But if we will do that, giving everything to Jesus. We will receive honor from God someday in His presence. That is something to live for. That is a mission right there. That is a vision for the future right there. If you just wrap your brain around that simple truth, Christ will change your life. If you don't know Jesus this morning, will you please stop? This charade. Will you please stop being so stubborn? You are throwing away your eternity. And for what? And for what? If you need to know him this morning, it's it's Jesus has already done the work on the cross. He has paid for your sin. And that sin is what separates you from God. He's paid for it. Just receive the payment. Just believe in His name. Repent of your sin that pierced Jesus and come to Him this morning laying yourself down saying, Lord, You are Lord of my life, Jesus. You are Lord of my life. Will you do that this morning as we close? Will you just cry out to Him? And then don't keep it to yourself. It's the greatest news in the history of the world when someone passes from death to life. If we saw someone physically pass from death to life this morning, we would think it was amazing. We would go tell everyone, guess what I saw today at Life? Spiritual death to life is even more of a miracle. It's something to be happy about. It's something to celebrate. And I want to celebrate. So if that's you this morning, share it with us. I'm going to give you a few moments uh, just to examine your heart. Examine what we've read in the word today and uh, then I'm going to close this <clears throat> Father how grateful I am for this church this family Lord that you've uh, given to me and, and my family, Lord. Um, so thankful for what you're doing here at, at Risen Life Fellowship and uh, just ask you to lead us, Lord. Father, with no distractions, let us be singly focused on the praise of, of you, Lord, and not on the praise of men. Father, change us in that way. Transform us as a a body this morning to where we live for one singular purpose, and that is to give You glory. To spread Your gospel so that more people might know and be saved. Lord, let that be a singular purpose of this church and of our individual lives, Lord. God please, save. If someone here, if someone listening doesn't know you please, give them another opportunity. Don't harden their hearts further, Lord. Save them. Please, Lord Jesus. God is so thankful your word through John. So thankful for the Savior, Lord. So thankful that you've, you've paid our penalty. We praise you for that. We praise you for loving us. Even in our sin, even while we are enemies of you, Lord, you love us. And God, we ask all these things this morning in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.